Please open your Bibles, if you have one, to Paul's letter to the Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 1, and God willing, we will complete the first chapter this morning. Last week, we began looking at Paul's prayer for the Ephesian church, and this week, we will um, finish that prayer. I'd like to begin the passage, I'd like to read the entire passage, Ephesians chapter 1, verses 15 to 23. You'll find the notes in the bulletin. You'll find the text on the back of the notes if you don't have a Bible. Um, but we'll begin by reading God's word and then a word of prayer. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power, and dominion, and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet, and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. And Lord, now we echo Paul's prayer. We pray that by your spirit, you would give us wisdom you would reveal truth, that our hearts would be enlightened, that our eyes might see, and we might see the measurable hope of our calling, the immense riches of our inheritance, and specifically the immeasurable greatness of your power that is towards us. So as we look, give us eyes to see. Help us to behold your glory, your power that you have worked in Christ on our behalf. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, so, Ephesians chapter 1 consists of an opening greeting and then two long sentences. Um, we spent four weeks going over the opening benediction, the opening um, praise and thanksgiving to God, starting in verse 3 all the way through 14. And we saw in that the Trinitarian God, each member of the Trinity, at work in our salvation, both past, present, and future, working on our behalf for his glory. And that then set the foundation for the prayer, the pastoral prayer that begins in 15 and closes out the chapter. And so we saw last week that the Apostle Paul, upon hearing of their faith and hearing of their love, began ceaselessly praying for them. And we considered, how do you pray for healthy people? How do you pray for people who, who don't have significant problems going on? The Ephesian church at this time didn't have massive doctrinal issues, infighting and conflict. I'm sure like every church, they had their share of issues, but unlike the other epistles Paul writes, there's no indication that he's correcting a specific problem. They appear to be healthy. And and the way that you pray for healthy, growing, maturing people is you pray not that they would receive more from God, but that they would understand what they've received more. 
That's what we learned last week. And consequently, for you and for me, our greatest need is that we would see, we would understand what God has done on our behalf. So I'm going to look at this in three points. The first point, somewhat of review, and then the second and third, um, going forward from verse 19. The first is the immeasurable greatness of his power revealed to us by his spirit. So the flow of thought is this. Paul prays for them. We see that in verse 16. I do not cease to give thanks to you. He's thankful for them. And he petitions in verse 17 that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you something. The Spirit, or through His Spirit, wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of Him. That having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, you might know what is the hope to which He has called you. And so that word, at the end of verse 17, knowledge, and that word in verse 18, know, is the content of his prayer. He prays that God might give us, by his spirit, through revelation and wisdom, knowledge. That's your blank. Paul's petition that we might know. Okay? And so we looked at that last week. And then, specifically, he's going to narrow it down even further, even though it's knowing who this God is, it's knowing three particular aspects. And we saw those three what's that, that link up what it is that we're to know. What, in verse 18, is the hope to which he has called you? What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe? So he he prays that God would give us, through his spirit, again, the Trinitarian working, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, through the spirit, would give us wisdom and revelation in knowing him, specifically, in knowing what are the hope of his calling, the immeasurable, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe. And that last what, power, is what becomes the, the, the beginning of the final section of this prayer. All of the rest of verse 19 through 23 is really going further with, developing further that final thing that we're to know, the immeasurable greatness of his power. That's how you can understand this morning's message is is further unpacking the third thing that we are to know. But I have to go back because this all comes out of his prayer that we would know this. So Paul's petition that we might know. And then you can ask the question, why? What's, What's the purpose? Why is this critical? This was kind of my point from last week. Why is it? And think about this. Paul hears there are believers at Ephesus. He planted the church, but he hears that more and more have come to faith. And he hears that they're growing. He hears that they love the saints. He hears a good report. And upon hearing of that, he says, I do not cease to give thanks. Remember you in my prayers. And what's he praying? Oh, God, give them a better knowledge. Help them to know the hope of their calling, their inheritance, and the immeasurable greatness of your power. Why is that so important? Why does the Apostle Paul, who's a church-planting missionary, a scripture-writing apostle, why is he carving out so much of his time, making such a priority to pray this prayer for them? Because it's critically important. And he tells them he prays this for them here as well, I think in part to set up what's coming. Why? Why do they need to know this? Point B, Paul's purpose ultimately is that we might grow. We can put in obey if you want. This knowledge of these things is what will give you and myself, what would give the Ephesians the ability, the strength to obey, to act in faith. 
all of the put-ons that come in the rest of the book. Go to, go to chapter 4, verse 12. We'll look at this a little more later in our message, but Christ's purpose, in verse 11, he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, the teachers, to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, which is what? The building up of the body of Christ. So Paul's purpose for this prayer is that the church might grow more and more into the image of Jesus Christ, that you and I might resemble Jesus more and more, that we might become, in fact, his body more and more. And so in Paul's logic, we need to know these things because in knowing and seeing and understanding these things, we will be able to act more and more like Jesus Christ, like his body. So your and my struggle with sin is frequently a struggle of really knowing and believing truth. And so Paul is praying that God would do this revealing. He would do this instructing. I want to pause here and focus also at Paul's process, because I think this is important. Um, Paul doesn't just say what he wants to happen. He says how he wants it to happen. And at this point, it's critical, because we have such an individualistic culture that if you just say that, what's important, what's critical for you and for me is that we might know these things, really know these things. You might be tempted to go off in a walk in the woods and just pray and hope that the Spirit would just sort of zap you and you'd know things. It'd be mystical. Or maybe that you might have a dream or a vision or an experience. Well, Paul is pretty explicit in how he intends for this knowing to occur. It's in this prayer implicit. It's implicit in the very writing of the epistle. And so I just want to focus on that briefly because this is the takeaway. This is the so what for us. The things we looked at last week, the things we're looking at this week, are the things you and I need to know if we're to become faithful. If you want to be the husband God's called you to be, the wife God's called you to be, the son or the daughter, the citizen, the family member, the the worker, the employer, the employee, you need to know these things as well. All the instruction that comes in the second half of this epistle is predicated on this knowledge. This is Paul's big prayer. Flip over to chapter 3. You'll see it again in his even bigger prayer for the church. He isn't praying that they'd have power. He isn't praying that they'd get things. He's praying that they would understand what they already have. That's, That's the point. He's not praying that God would give them more power. Again, it's back to understanding. Verse 14 of chapter 3. For this reason I bow my knee before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. And again, notice Paul's emphasis on process. He doesn't just want a result. He wants it to occur a certain way. That according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. Notice the specificity. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend. All of that introduction Christ dwelling in you, his spirit, power, is is to set the stage for a greater comprehension and understanding that you may comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth, the length, the height, and the depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. That big prayer is a setup. They need to understand and know the love of Christ better. And this is a supernaturally acquired knowledge. This is not a knowledge that can be gotten through a YouTube video, through a a, a touching story. 
Paul's very explicit. It takes supernatural power from God the Father through his Holy Spirit to the inner being. That is the only way you and I are going to be able to understand the love of Christ in God for us the way Paul wants us to. So that, that's critical. But notice again, that's the emphasis of his prayer. Our greater knowing, our greater understanding. And so how then is this to happen? Now, in the Reformed churches, there's sometimes an expression called the ordinary means of grace. And that's the short answer, the ordinary means of grace. And and what the ordinary means of grace refers to is the way God usually grows his saints, the way God usually grows his people. Yes, Jesus appears to Paul on the road to Emmaus. That's not the ordinary means of evangelism, is it? Normally, someone goes forth and explains the gospel. Yes, God has sent angels to tell the shepherds. That's not the ordinary means of announcing Christ, right? Usually it's through his word, through people speaking his word. And so the ordinary means for such understanding are these three things, and it's in the Ephesian epistle. First, through prayer, through prayer. That's what Paul's doing. He's asking God. And so if you recognize, if I recognize this is what I need, I need to understand who God is in Christ better. I need to understand what he's done more fully. I need to grasp more deeply his love. That's not something you and I can just go do. We need to ask God for it. And so be praying to that end. Is this something you pray for? So often our prayer requests are what I'll refer to as prosperity gospel light. Not that there's anything wrong with praying for safe travel, praying for health, praying for um, a job, praying for safety. Those are fine. We have biblical examples of that. They're the outliers and the fringe of what Paul prays for. In Philemon, he says, may your health be in accordance with your spiritual health. That'd be an interesting prayer for us to pray. I will pray that you be as physically healthy as you are spiritually healthy. But Paul can pray for health. But normally he's praying for things that are far more important. And so I just want to challenge you to incorporate these types of prayers into your prayer life, along with prayer for safety, along with prayer for health. We've been praying for Ron, and we're so thankful that those prayers have been answered in this most recent scan, came back clear. Praise God. We're not going to stop praying for that. There are more important things to be praying for than that. Amen? Amen. That, that's the point. Be in prayer for the things that really matter. And one of the things that Paul says he's praying nonstop is that the church might understand these things more fully and better. And it's an understanding that doesn't come from any other source than the sovereign God who gives his spirit. This is not something we could do on our own. Um, This is not a knowledge that comes from, from a memorable, cute story. This is knowledge that comes by the spirit through revelation and wisdom. And we pray for it. This is what Psalm 119, verse 18 says. You, you, you'll recognize I pray this all the time, nearly every Sunday morning. I'm praying a version of Psalm 119, verse 18. Lord, open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. And it's a recognition. I can stare at this all day. I cannot see glory unless God opens my eyes. So through prayer, through prayer. Okay, how else does God reveal this through the word, through the word. Now turn over to Ephesians chapter five. Try to make this point explicit to you. And while you turn there, the very fact that Paul's writing this epistle to instruct them lets us know Paul thinks it's through the word. 
through the very letter to the Ephesians, through this inspired epistle, Paul is attempting, praying, hoping that God would use this epistle to help them understand the very things he's praying for, right? He's praying for them, but he's telling them he's praying for them, which is a subtle way of trying to, or maybe not so subtle, communicate it to them themselves. And in Ephesians 5, you get to probably as a familiar verse for many of you, 5.18 through uh, 21. Let's read that. Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Again, this wisdom comes to the Spirit, right? Addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord of your hearts, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. So be filled with the Spirit, and these things will happen, right? Now keep your thumb here and turn over to Colossians chapter 3. Colossians is kind of the sister letter to Ephesians. Many of the exact same themes and even some similar phrasings occur. And a very, very similar passage to this occurs in Colossians with one notable difference. We're looking for how God grants by his spirit wisdom and revelation of the knowledge of him. Look at Colossians chapter 3, verses 16 through 17. Very similar Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of our Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Do you see how similar that is? I'll read the Ephesians one again. You can stay here in Colossians. Be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melodies to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the Lord name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. And we won't look at this now, but he goes on in Colossians to deal with wives, husbands, children, and what we call the household code, various relationships in the body, servants to masters, Husbands and wives and children, it's exactly what he does in Ephesians. The significant difference is in this. The very similar outcome, singing and making melody in our hearts with songs, teaching and admonishing one another, in Ephesians comes from being filled with the Spirit, and in Colossians it comes with letting the Word of Christ dwell on you richly. See, the, the Spirit's weapon of choice is the Word. And we know that. We were born again by the living and abiding Word, James 1. Let's go back to Ephesians chapter 1. The very epistle itself becomes a testament to this necessity. How do we know God better? What instrument will God use to reveal to us these things? His word. Now, in the first point, it it takes him giving it through his spirit, but here's what you and I can do. We can put this in front of ourselves again and again and again, and we, like Jacob wrestling with the angel, can say, I'm not going to look away. I'm not putting this down. I'm not getting back to breakfast until I... See something glorious, something encouraging, something strengthening, something convicting. Spirit, open my eyes. And I can turn the other lights off. I can put the phone down. I can shut off Facebook. I can turn the TV off. I can turn the radio off. And I can say, I can't make myself see glory here. Only the Spirit can remove the veil. Only the Spirit can show me something worth seeing. But what I can do is ask and then set this in front of my face and say, I will not put you down till you bless me. That's what we can do if we want to see the way Paul wants us to see. Again, remember Paul's priority in praying this for them. Oh, God, please, please, 
through your spirit, through wisdom and revelation, let them know more fully who you are, the hope of their calling, the riches of their inheritance, and the immeasurable greatness of your power. And the third way we can know this, that God can reveal this to us, is through the church. Through the church, through fellowship with one another. These are the ordinary means of grace, the way God ordinarily accomplishes these things. And again, that's implicit in the very letter. Turn over to chapter 4 again. We looked at verse 11 and 12 that Christ in ascending gave the church apostles and prophets and evangelists and shepherds and teachers. Why? To equip the saints for the work of the ministry, which is the building up the body of Christ. How exactly does that happen? How do we in practice become more and more like Christ? How does the body begin to resemble the head more and more? Look at verse 15 and 16. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, it makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. The body speaks the truth in love to itself. So I, I, would, I would plead with you to recognize this as a great need that you and I have. Even as you're healthy, even if you aren't struggling with some tragedy, some huge sin issue, even as you feel like you're growing and maturing, this is a great need for you. This is a great need for me. And the way God accomplishes and grants this knowledge is through our prayers, through our focus in the word, and through our fellowship with each other as we speak the truth and love to each other. This isn't some mystical go off for a walk in the desert. This is get down on your knees, open your Bible, and be in fellowship in the church. Okay, that's the prelude to this morning's message, revealed by the Spirit. And with that introduction, Paul then goes on to unpack further this power. The power gets the bigger treatment. So we looked at the hope of our calling, and we looked at the riches of our inheritance. But as he turns his attention to the immeasurable greatness of God's power, that's not enough. Paul, Paul needs to go on further. And he's going to give four verbs, four ways God expressed that. We're going to look at it over two points, but you can see them in verse 20. He raised him from the dead, and seated him, verse 22, put all things under his feet, and gave him his head. And Paul's going to point to these four things to show us the immeasurable greatness of God's power. Because that's the logic. He wants us to understand in verse 18, 19, sorry, the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe. And he says, according to, in keeping with, the same type of power, or another way of saying it is, if you want to better understand what Paul is talking about, you look to these four things, because it's the same type of powers in keeping with this power. So we're going to look at that over two points. First, the immeasurable greatness of his power worked for us in Jesus Christ. You want to know what power God has available for you, towards you, you look at Christ. And the first thing we look at is stunning. We look at this resurrection. According to... In keeping with, corresponding to, different ways of saying it, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead, in his resurrection from the dead. That's just staggering. We have achieved many wondrous things with modern science and biology. We can make planes fly. We can send information wirelessly through the air. But one thing we cannot do is, is gift the spark of life to things that are dead. We cannot do that. 
We, we can bring back from the dead people who've just recently died, but what we can't do is dig up bodies and, and gift life. God can, and he did. And this supreme act of power on God's behalf that the grave could not hold the Lord Jesus Christ, that a, a body that had died and been in the tomb for three days rose victoriously to life and rose in strength and in, and in incorruptibility, Jesus did not limp out of the tomb. That power is the same type of power that God has towards you and to me. It's not, in other words, that Paul is asking for power, but that we would grasp the the greatness. That's that's the the language, the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe. In his resurrection. This is the language that sets up the but God in chapter 2. Look at chapter 2. Remember, we'll be starting here next week. In chapter 2, Paul's going to look at our former and present state, first individually, as lost dead sinners, then as adopted sons, and then corporately as Gentiles brought near. Before and after, first individually, then corporately. And in verses 1 to 3, we see our individual state formerly. We were dead in our trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of the flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive. See, that's that same power, the same power that caused Jesus' heart to start beating again in the tomb, caused us to live even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you've been saved. And just as Christ was raised in the grave and raised to the right hand of the Father and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. It's the same power. That's what Paul's making the point. You want to know what power God has on behalf of you, for you, directed towards you? It's the same power that raised Christ from the dead. It's the same power that raised Christ from the dead. That's that's jaw-dropping. The the critical point for us is that we would see and understand that so that we could live in accordance with it. It's no lack of power that makes your Christian walk feeble. It's a lack of, of plugging into that power source, believing, knowing, being aware of and utilizing that power. That Paul is on his knees praying for the Ephesians. They would understand. You've got to understand just how much power God has directed towards you. Not power to go be healthy, wealthy, and wise, but power to do the things God is calling you to do. Power to obey the imperatives in the second half of this epistle. To walk wisely, to walk in light, to walk in love, to put on the whole armor of God, to fight the fight of faith. Power to be victorious against the devil and the hosts of hell. Power. The same power that has worked when Christ was raised from the dead. In his resurrection from the dead. And second, in his exaltation. So in his resurrection and in his exaltation to the right hand. Verse 20. That he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places. So first, the father raises Jesus' dead body. 
And then he exalts the son. This is utilized in the language of Psalm 110. You remember Psalm 110? We've studied it a year or two back. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. Well, that's where Christ has been exalted to, the place of supreme honor. So not only has God by his power granted life, raised the Lord from death, but he has exalted him. And that's not enough for Paul to say. He's got to go on and and stack up descriptions. How how high has Christ been exalted? How how high, Paul? (laughs) Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. Far above every earthly rule and power, far above all spiritual rule and power. I'll read a quote from J. Armitage Robinson. How high has Christ been raised? Above all that anywhere is, anywhere can be, above all grades of dignity, real or imagined, good or evil, present or to come, the mighty power of God has exalted and enthroned Christ. You, you and I worry and live in fear of small earthly powers. We live concerned what the power of North Korea might do or China might do or what our president might do or what other powerful men on earth might do. And compared to us and what we can do, they they may be, in a sense, powerful. Christ has been exalted above all earthly rule, all earthly powers. There is a power at work for us far greater than the power of China, power of the United States, power of North Korea, the power of the entire globe harnessed together in unison, whatever, the power of the stars. There is a power that raised Christ and exalted him above all of that. And that is the power at work towards us. Far above all earthly rule and all spiritual power. Turn, turn to chapter 4 again. See, it's Christ's exaltation and resurrection that grants us this power. There's a linking here. Not only is this power in keeping with Christ's resurrection and Christ's exaltation, but it's also the means that we receive it, interestingly. We're getting ahead of our study, but in chapter 4, you'll see that it was in the very act of ascending that Christ gave us his spirit and gave us gifts. Look at verse 7, chapter 4, verse 7. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. When did Christ give us a gift? Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. He gave gifts to men when he ascended on high. In saying he ascended, what does it mean? But that he also descended into the lower regions of the earth. But he who descended is the one who ascended far above all the heavens and that he might fill all things. And he gave apostles and prophets and evangelists and the shepherds and the teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry for the building up of the body of Christ. When did you and I receive the spirit? When did Christ give his spirit to his church to seal his body, to gift his body for the work of ministry? At the ascension. So not only is Christ's resurrection and ascension a demonstration for us to see the power, we also are going to learn later in the epistle, it's also how that power comes to us. Far above Spiritual rule. Now turn over to Ephesians chapter uh, 6. This stacking of lists is important, I think, because towards the end of the epistle, we're going to find out we're up against some pretty powerful foes. 
Finally, brethren, 610, be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. I read that, and man, we picture angels as these little, like, cute people with wings. The very first thing nearly every angel says to people they appear to is, don't be afraid. Angelic forces that can wipe out Sennacherib's army like that. An angel that can wipe out the firstborn in Egypt like that. We are up against forces that without power from God would obliterate us. Destroy us in a moment. And so it's important for us to know the power that God has towards us is the power that has already victoriously raised Christ above all these things. So that when, in chapter 6, Paul tells you and me, pick up the armor of God, get the sword of the Spirit, get the shield of faith, and do battle with demons, that we don't go, oh no. Rather, we know that the same power that exalted Christ above all of those is at work in us. And because of that, not only can we fight, but we can triumph. That, that's what Paul wants us to understand. That's what Paul wants us to understand. Christ has been exalted. He's been given the name that is above every name. Philippians puts it this way. God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He's been raised and he has been exalted. I just want to encourage you to put the resurrected Christ in the forefront of your mind. I know it's very appealing to think of Christ in his humbled state. Babies in mangers are not intimidating. Men in robes breaking loaves and fish are not intimidating. As Jesus is, you know, and we're comfortable with humbled Jesus. We're comfortable with pre-glorified Jesus. We're, he's safe, or at least safer. But in every post-ascension appearance, he has his full glory. The apostle John, who at the Last Supper had his head in Jesus' side when he sees Jesus on the Isle of Patmos. you got to read that description, by the way. His hair is like burning. His eyes are glowing. A sword's coming out of his mouth. He's the glorified Lord. The apostle John does not run up and give him a high five. He falls down on his face as if dead. And so one of the things I'd encourage you to do is when you think of the Lord, don't just think of him in his humbled state. Don't just think of him as we do at Christmas. Yes, I think it's great that we remember the initiation of the incarnation, his birth. But please, the Lord longed for his glory. The very first prayer request Jesus has in John 17 is, I want the glory that I had with you from the beginning of the world. He's received it. He's been exalted Please don't insult them by saying, but I'd much prefer thinking of you without your glory. That's, that's one of the reasons why I got serious questions about people who tell me they have visions of the Lord and you hear about that coming from overseas. And my one question I have is, again and again when I hear these stories, it's a humble Jesus. It's a, a Jesus without glory. It's a Jesus who isn't a king. 
He's a Jesus who people aren't falling on their faces as if dead in front of. Now, he can do as he pleases, but knowing his desire for his glory, knowing how he shows up on the Emmaus Road to Paul, knowing how he shows up to John on Patmos, I have questions. I just encourage you to remember who he is, not who he was. He is the Lord of glory. He is the King of kings. He has been exalted. He is sitting at the Father's right hand. He has the title deed. He's opened the scroll. He is worthy. And that power is at work towards us who believe as well. So that's the power God worked in us, worked for us in Jesus Christ. Let's look quickly at the power available to us in the church. Power available to us in the church. We're going to look at the last two things God has done. First, God subjugated all things to him. This is probably in some sense implicit in the exaltation, but Paul wants to make it explicitly clear. It's not only that God has raised up the Son above every name and every power and everything and every ruler you could imagine, but he has also placed all things under his feet. Again, it's another reference to the Psalms, this time Psalm 8, verse 6. You've given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. And as the true, perfect, and second Adam, Jesus rules all of creation. So make no mistake, both in the exaltation of Christ and in placing everything underneath him, the ordering and the relationship is clear. He is the one who is great in every Other created thing, stars, cats, demons, angels, people, you name it. It's under his feet. That's power. That's the power that's at work for us. Power that placed everything under his feet. But now don't miss this. This is the amazing shift. Okay, so so Christ has been so exalted and all of the created order is placed under his feet, which includes you and I. But then God gives this Christ to us. It's absolutely jaw-dropping. After going to such great lengths to list how exalted he is, now everything else is under his authority, we then read he gave him to the church. God gifted Christ to the church. This exalted Christ. Now he gifted him his head. That's our first blank. He didn't gift him. He gave, gifted him in a very specific way for a very specific purpose. But he gifted him. He gave him to the church. And again, Paul is here setting up themes he will go much further with later in the epistle. We'll look at quickly first. He gave him his head. He is its head. Now, this is the rationale Paul will use later. Turn again to Ephesians 4. As you can see, we are stealing a fair bit from Ephesians 4, but he's setting it up so well here. He is its head. And that's exactly the picture, the imagery Paul uses about what we are growing into. As we speak the truth and love to each other, as we behold and know and understand the hope of his calling, riches of our inheritance, and his immeasurable power towards us who believe. Rather, verse 15, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head. The body will follow suit with the head. 
into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Now turn over to chapter 5. You see, all of the rest of creation has been placed, put under Christ's authority. They've been defeated in a sense. You and I have been gifted him as a head. You and I have been gifted this ruler and king. Every, everything else in the universe is, is pushed down there, is placed under him, subjugated to him. And this is, again, the, the imagery for marriage that Paul's going to use. Look at Ephesians 5.22. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself is himself his savior. Notice the imagery there? It's the same notion. Um, in marriage, wives, you've been gifted ahead. And we can tend to think of any sort of subjugation or authority as, 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 as a negative thing. But the contrast back in chapter 1 here is all things are placed under his feet, and he gave him his head to the church. We've been given a head. We've been given a leader. We've been given a, a king in contrast to the rest of the universe that is placed under his authority, we've been given. Make no mistake, he's ahead. He tells us what to do and we obey. It's not a negotiation. But it's a distinct type of relationship. The rest of creation, put under his authority, we are given him as a head. He is our head. And that, of course, then sets up we are his body. We are his body. Stay back in chapter 5. Same imagery Paul's going to use about husbands. This, this picture of Christ and his church has much to model and much to instruct for marriage. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church, verse 25, and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her and cleansed her with the washing of the water, which is with the word, so he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and blameless in his sight in the same way husbands love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. It's the amazing reality. Christ has joined himself. He has so identified himself with his people. The picture of marriage is the picture of Christ's union with his people. And in that sense, he is our head in a different way than he is the head of the rebels. Because they are not part of his body. We are joined to him. We are one in him. And this, again, is how we receive access to that power, by being joined to the body the same power that raised him raised us. The same power that exalted him exalts us and seats us with him, as Paul will say in chapter 2. We are his body. And then we get to the final statement. Christ fills his church. He is his head. We are his body. Christ fills his church. Paul uses another sort of word picture here that is, again, an um, example of paradox. He gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body. The church is his body. The fullness of him. The church is the fullness of him who fills all in all. We fill up the one who fills all things. Is kind of, I think, what Paul's saying. And it's meant to make you go, hmm. 
And here, here's the amazing reality. This God who is so vast and so great that he fills time and space. When we talk about God's omnipresence, you're really just talking about God being so great, so vast, he is everywhere. His body completes or fills him up in the same way that my wife completes me. That's, that's the picture of the The same way that a head without a body is hard to conceive of. The body completes and complements the head. Martin Lloyd-Jones says this about this amazing reality. As a body needs a head, and you cannot think of a head without a body, so the body and the head are one in some mystical sense. John Calvin goes even further. John Calvin writes, This is the highest honor of the church, that unless he, Christ, is united to us, the Son of God reckons himself in some measure imperfect. That's, That's Calvin. After being joined to his bride... What an encouragement it is for us to hear that not until he has us as one with himself is he complete in all his parts, or does he wish to be regarded as whole. This is why it's such a priority that the bride begin to resemble the head, the body begin to resemble the head, because only when the body fully is in keeping and fitting with the head will there be true wholeness. Which is why Paul is going to say that is the work of ministry. And that is the basis on which we can wage war. That is the basis on which we can act in hope. We are united. I mean, here's the logic. He goes to great lengths. Christ is so exalted, so lifted up, so heralded and given such a great name. Everything's put under his feet. And because we're his body, where the head goes, we go. That is absolutely Paul's logic. Look at chapter 2, verse 6. Raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Because where the head goes, the body goes. And the authority and the power and the name that the head has is granted to the body. This is why Christ will build his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against her. It's not because we're real tough. We've got really smart game plans. Since we're connected to the head and the head is given this name above the gates of hell, above the powers of hell. And Paul is in deep prayer that we would comprehend and understand this. I'm going to call the worship team up as we get ready to sing our closing song. And I would just encourage you that these realities are critical for us to see. Paul, as busy as he is, is praying night and day that the Ephesian church would better understand, better know these things. That needs to be our prayer. Make the effort, take the time to pray, to read, to be in fellowship, that we might know the hope of his calling, the riches of our inheritance among the saints, and the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe.